0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be
2: Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The Outsider
1: the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Hello, welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today, we're bringing you a very special interview with author and filmmaker and professor at the University of British Columbia, Joel Bakken.
1: That's right, Seth. We have an interview with Joel Bakken about his most recent book on corporate influence on children, as well as some special content at the end, additional interviews with Laurette Lynn of the Unplugged Mom show, and also a bit of the discussion about our upcoming plans for the Degrowth Conference in Montreal this May 13th through the 19th, which we're very excited about. We have some very special things planned.
0: That's right, Justin. The extra environmentalist is going on the road, and this time there's going to be video. Yes,
1: we are making our leap into video. So because we have so much to talk about, we're going to get this interview started. Joel Bakken, you're an author, filmmaker, and professor of law at the University of British Columbia, and your work includes films like The Corporation and The Corresponding Book. And today, we're here to talk about your most recent book, Childhood Under Siege.
3: That is correct, and I'm happy to be here joining you today. So, Joel, as you
1: finished writing the book The Corporation and making that into a really incredible feature film that really opened a lot of people's eyes to the power that corporations have in modern society today. What have you learned about the influence of corporations on our lives since then?
3: Well, I've learned that the influence of making documentary films isn't that substantial because all of the problems that we talked about (laughs) in the middle of the 2000s have, have really only gotten worse. And it's with some regret that I say, the film turned out to be kind of uh, prophetic in the sense that I guess our, our message was that we were on a course towards dysfunctionality and disaster and crisis in society as a result of the increasing power we were giving to corporations. And I'd much rather be here saying today that I felt that the film was part of a movement to reverse that trend but but I think instead the film kind of put its finger on that trend and and said this is a problem and the last uh, five or six years since have proved that that's the case.
0: In the film you talked to some really powerful people. Could you tell us a little bit about what what it was like speaking to these people and and how that affected the filmmaking?
3: Well, I think you know, the thing about so called powerful people is is that in the end they're people and they derive most of the power from the offices that they occupy, whether it's the office of a CEO or a or a congressperson or a senator or a judge. And so, you know, when you're when you're talking to them, they they tend to be like anybody else and you know, you put difficult questions to them and they sweat like anybody else. And I think that the film was definitely enhanced by the fact that we we... We did have access to many sort of captains of industry and and people who, who were at the core Of the problems that we were talking about and and I think you know one of the really refreshing things about the film is that you actually hear them rather than hearing their critics say oh well this is what they do and this is what they say you actually hearing them talking about what they do and you get the sense and it's a central idea in the film uh, that the problem isn't so much with the people yes of course they're morally responsible and accountable for their actions But in the end, they are kind of the the foot soldiers of a system that's, uh, that's much larger than they are and they need to be accountable for choosing to do what they do and i'm speaking in particular of the of the ceos uh, that we spoke with but they're also and i think in the film it comes out that that they're also human that they're also concerned about the problems that we are you know there's there's some quite moving footage from the former chair of royal dutch Shell talking about how he's concerned about the environment and he's concerned about this and that and Some footage of the former chair and CEO of Goodyear Tyre talking about how bad it made him feel to lay off thousands of people. And you get the sense in both cases that, you know, these people are not that much different than anybody else in terms of their concerns as human beings. But... They're part of a, a system that demands that they do inhuman things and that they they act in ways that are are destructive. And whatever the psychology is that enables them to sort of paper over that that fundamental contradiction between who they are as individuals and who they are as corporate operatives, I don't know how that works. I'm not a psychologist, but. I suggest in both the book and and in the film we suggest it, too, that it has to do with our ability, and some people are better than others at this, at sort of compartmentalizing. The best I've been able to kind of get a sense of it in terms of my own psychology is that when I play hockey I'm a really nasty person but in in my regular life I'm a really nice person and part of that is because when I'm playing ice hockey I'm playing by a set of rules that are very different from the set of rules when I'm interacting with my family or colleagues at work and the set of rules basically says your job is to be nasty, your job is to be brutal, your job is to be violent. And so when I step on the ice, I become a different person, not because anything changes inside of me, but because I'm now playing by a different institutional set of rules. And so I think in some respects, it's like that for these corporate executives who who do seem to be genuinely good people, but somehow they can hang their life morality on the hook at the door as they walk into their office and then the role that the institution requires of them. So that's a very long answer that could go on and on and on <laughs> about issues of moral agency and, and moral responsibility and all those sorts of things. And those are all the big issues that underlie the book and the film.
1: Being a, a professor of law, you teach and you write and you talk about the laws in our society and how they set that system in motion. And so, did you think that? perhaps by making the film The Corporation and and writing that book, it could get people to push to change those structures of society that are putting people in those pathological positions?
3: Well, that's the idea. I mean, the idea is that rather than kind of vilifying the people who work for corporations, because there is a lot of that that goes on and, and it's often legitimate, but I wanted to kind of take a step back and say, you know what, this isn't just their problem, it's actually all of our problem because we live in a democracy and and for whatever reasons, we the people have allowed or created or enabled or facilitated a system that is quite inhuman in many of its dimensions and can really wreak havoc in the world. And we've kind of accepted that that system can simply operate without very much oversight, especially over the last 30 years as we've into what many call a kind of neoliberal moment in history where we're talking about deregulation we're talking about privatization so we as a society through our governments have created this institution the corporation in the image of a human psychopath and then we've kind of said well let's just let it do its thing we let's let's pull back on Regulating it, let's give it more power and more authority and more scope through privatization. And we're all doing this as citizens. Uh, we're all allowing this to happen, and so we're all responsible. And we all need to do something. And the the idea with the book and film was maybe if if we put this out there into the public domain, maybe if we actually uh, give people a sense of what the legal structure and therefore the political problem of the corporation, as maybe people will start to activate for change. That, at least, is the idea. And, you know, anecdotally, I've heard many stories of people who say they watched the film and it changed their life and they became an activist as a result of seeing the film or... They went and became involved in some different kind of work than what they were doing before. I mean, I've heard many such accounts. When I look at where we are as a society and where we are in terms of corporate power, I have to conclude that the film and book were an absolute failure in terms of avoiding the problems that it suggested we would be moving into if we stayed the course. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, what do you, you mean exactly? Are you saying the book and film were a failure? I can say
0: that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't say that, Seth. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry. No, the, the book and the film were, were very great. I, I've, I've uh, watched the film and it was, it was a wonderful film. Right. Um, many of these ideas that we, that you talk about in the film and in the book go against the capitalistic norm and it goes against much of what we learn in school and what we're taught by our politicians and our parents growing up. What has helped you to move past these illusions that hold so many of us hostage into the new understanding that you've demonstrated in the film and in your book?
3: I, higher education, I guess. I, you know, I, I, I think I benefited from some great teachers in the places where I was. I went to a number of different universities and and had some great mentors and teachers who, who taught me, uh, not necessarily to be political in any particular way, because I'm thinking of, I, I clerked for the Chief Justice of Canada. He was one of my great teachers. My dons at Oxford and analytical jurisprudence for great teachers. And I guess what the, the sort of common message that I took from from all of them was not to look at the world purely from a surface perspective, that ideas are highly contingent. And I guess most importantly, that it's a kind of human or social dynamic to treat things as natural and inevitable when in fact they're human artifacts. And to me, that is the fundamental message that I've learned from my great teachers, many of whom were not at all political or left-wing or critical or anything um, in a political sense, but really kind of taught me that this dynamic goes on, that what we take for granted in the world as created by nature or god is usually something that's created by by human beings and in a particular way and serving particular interests and so if i if i take that understanding and look at the corporation in that way you know you get the corporation film and book there's no real sort of scintillatingly original insight there as a lawyer i i know what the law is that composes the corporation and any other lawyer you talk to knows the same that basically the law demands that managers and directors always put the interests of shareholders and owners above everybody else's and that everybody else's interests are just externalities. so you know there, that's not a big secret that i had to uncover
0: well, it's a big secret for many of us who don't really understand what corporations are really about. Right. So you're saying that higher education helped you to, to learn to think critically or helped you to see what corporations were really about?
3: Helped me to learn to think critically, which then, you know, as a lawyer involved in, I mean, I teach commercial law. That's one of the areas I teach. And I, I couldn't help but see the corporation as the somewhat bizarre institution it is. You know, as a lawyer, you're trained to understand that laws are created by legislatures and judges and politicians, and it's the job of the police and the the judiciary to administer those laws, and that laws are usually the result of conflicting interests in society, and whoever kind of manages to get their interests forward tend to get laws that are favorable to those interests. And and so I just kind of looked at that in terms of this inherently legal institution the corporation. And you're right. I mean, it is the case that I think most people found that insight about what the corporation is to be somewhat surprising. And I guess that would be an indication of the failures (laughs) of both higher education and, uh, and kindergarten to 12th grade education. We don't learn in school. At least I didn't. About the corporation, and it seemed like something, given how important the institution is in the world, shouldn't we be learning about that? Shouldn't we be learning about marketing, which is so important to us? Shouldn't we be learning about how our democratic institutions work or don't work. So there's a lot that we don't learn in school that perhaps we should. And I had the great luxury, and I say it's a luxury because not everybody can take you know years out of their life to go and, and just devote time to studying. I mean, it's an incredible privilege. Uh, and I had that privilege, and and uh, I think it, it helped a great deal in enabling me to, uh, to produce a work like that.
4: Is a corporation.
5: 150 years ago, the business corporation was a relatively insignificant institution. Today,
1: it is all pervasive. Like the church, the monarchy, and the Communist Party in other times and places, the corporation is today's dominant institution.
2: I do think there is um, an overhang uh, over the market of distrust. Listen, 95% or some percent, huge percentage of the business community are honest and uh, reveal all their assets and got compensation programs that are balanced, but
6: there are some bad
2: apples.
1: The media debate about the basic operating principles of the corporate world was quickly reduced to a game of follow the leader.
6: I still happen to think the
7: United States is the greatest place in the world to invest. We have some shakeups that are going on because of a few bad apples. These are not just a bunch of bad apples. This
8: is just a few bad apples. It's not just a few bad apples. Can't we
2: pick a better metaphor to describe the
1: dominant institution of our time? We present the corporation as a paradox, an institution that creates great wealth but causes enormous
5: and often hidden harms.
7: I see the corporation as part of a jigsaw in society as a whole, which if you remove it, the picture's incomplete. But equally, if it's the only path, it's not going to work.
4: A corporation is like a family unit. People in a corporation work together for a common end.
7: Like the telephone system, it reaches almost everywhere. It's extraordinarily powerful. It's pretty hard to avoid.
9: Gerald Zernstein grinds his own hamburger these days. Why? Because this former USDA scientist, now whistleblower, knows that 70 percent of the ground beef we buy at the supermarket contains something he calls pink slime. Beef trimmings that were once used only in dog food and cooking oil now sprayed with ammonia to make them safe to eat and then added to most ground beef as a cheaper filler. And it doesn't have to appear on the label, because over objections of its own scientists, USDA officials with links to the beef industry labeled pink slime meat.
2: The undersecretary said, it's pink,
9: therefore it's meat. ABC News has learned the woman who made the decision to okay the mix is former undersecretary of agriculture Joanne Smith, a call that led to hundreds of millions of dollars for Beef Products, Inc., the makers of pink slime. When Smith stepped down from USDA, BPI's principal supplier appointed her to the board of directors, where she made at least $1.2 million over 17 years. She did not return our calls for comment.
8: One of the questions that comes up periodically is to what extent could a corporation be uh, considered to be uh, psychopathic? And if we look at a corporation as a legal person, that it may not be that difficult to actually draw the transition between psychopathy in the individual to psychopathy in, in a corporation. They would have all the characteristics, and in fact, in many respects, corporation of that sort is the prototypical psychopath.
2: New findings back up the concern the dispersion BP used so widely may do more harm than the oil itself.
4: I was more concerned about the corrected than the oil also.
2: Now, researchers say it appears they've detected a correxit sort of fingerprint in these orange blobs found lodged in the bodies of tiny blue crab larvae Collected from marshes that stretch from Texas to Florida.
10: We're at unprecedented
11: volumes of dispersant used so far. New Orleans attorneys representing fishermen and cleanup
2: workers who have left boats because they're sick have hired experts to test air and water quality samples. A toxicologist out of Florida found that some of these chemicals are in great excess of risk-based lethal levels. That the current hydrocarbon levels are capable of sterilizing our fisheries and estuary production
9: zones. The
8: fact that most of these companies are run by white men, white rich men, uh, means that they are out of touch with what the majority of the world is. Because the majority of this planet are not a bunch of rich white guys. Uh, They're people of other colors, they're the majority. Women are the majority. And the poor and working poor make up the majority of this planet. So uh, the decisions that they make uh, come from uh, not the reality that exists uh, throughout the world.
2: One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way... Corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on... Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So, where do you think it goes? In their pockets! Whose pockets? Whose pockets?
5: People's pockets.
7: I'll locate your employees and I will tell them that I'm calling from Acme Recruiting Agency and that I've got a job that pays them considerably more than what they're paying. Would they mind meeting me for an interview? And when the executive shows up, what he doesn 't realize is i 'm actually debriefing him on behalf of a competitor and that there is no job, and that the office that he 's at uh, has been rented and and the uh, the picture on my desk of my family is a phony and it's it 's all just a big elaborate ruse to glean competitive information from from him i don 't feel any guilt it's you know what I mean you have to expect that guys like me are out there. We're predators. It's about competition. I mean, it's about market share. It's about being aggressive. It's about shareholder value. What is your stock at today? If you're a CEO, I mean, do you think your your, your, your shareholders really care whether you're Billy Buttercup or not? You know, do you think that they really They would prefer you to be a nice guy over uh over having money in their pocket i don't think so i think people want money that's the bottom line
2: the profit motive which drove futsy to accomplish so much may bring out
9: the evil as well as the good
0: You're listening to episode 40 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Joel Bakken, author, filmmaker, and professor of law at the University of British Columbia.
1: You were speaking about the education system and so many of our social institutions are just given to us kind of as uh, package. It seems like all of these things have always been here in many ways, and so we just accept them for what they are. Uh-huh. And so what you were writing about in, in your book, The Corporation, and also your more recent book uh, about corporate influence on children is kind of where those institutions came from. And that's perhaps the critical thinking aspect of it. But diving more into the education component, how are corporations influencing the education system in the United States? And in
3: Canada. It's a it's a big topic, and it's one that here in BC we're we're sort of right in the middle of uh, with the teachers about to go on strike, and the government in this province having pursued over the last ten or twelve years an agenda in terms of education that is quite consistent with the the neoliberal agenda that's prevailed in the United States. It's far further ahead in the United States than it is in Canada, and it has had the support of both President Bush in his No Child Left Behind program and now President Obama in the Race to the Top program. What both of these initiatives had in common and what many initiatives in the various states vis-a-vis education have in common is a movement away from public schooling as we know it, a movement towards much more dependence of the so-called public system on private for-profit corporations to create tests, to train teachers, to mark tests. To create curricula, to run schools, often through equivalent to HMOs, what are called EMOs, education management organizations, large for-profit companies that are in the business of running schools that go into failing schools and develop what are called turnaround programs. So, uh, technology just and, and a growing dependence. On partnerships, as they're nicely called, between schools and businesses and between education more generally and the school system more generally and big business. Getting lost in all of that, I think, and I argue this in my new book, I devote two chapters to this. Getting lost in all of that are the ideals of public education, the ideals that every individual is entitled to an education of similar high quality. That public education is not just about training people for the world of of work, um, but is also training people for the world of citizenship and that public education has an obligation to create a kind of critical minded, informed individual who can quit himself or herself of the the duties and obligations of citizenship. These ideas are all really getting lost, and the basic notion is that schools are there to train people to go into the workforce, schools in in inner city neighborhoods and impoverished neighborhoods. Uh, should give up on these ideals of trying to teach kids more than simply being able to do some kind of a menial job in some particular industry. So these ideas, these broader ideas that initially were behind the rise of the public schooling system, this notion that there's this intrinsic link between public schooling and the possibility of democracy, this is really getting lost in the United States in a major way. It's it's not even really part of the discourse anymore. When do you think we
1: lost our way in in terms of looking at education as something that developed an, an enriching life experience as opposed to job training?
3: Well, I mean, you can trace it back, actually, to President Reagan's Secretary of Education. And I do this. I sort of go through a a bit of a history of it in my new book and a report that was written by him called A Nation at Risk and it was a very influential report and it basically said that our education system wasn't working anymore in enabling the United States to be the world power in terms of the economy, in terms of innovation that it had been before. That, that was,
0: recently, though.
3: You know, in the book, I trace a lot of things back to 1980. That's an important watershed moment in the history of the world. And I opened the book by talking about that fact, that It was really the beginning of of a new and quite different ideology than had held at least since the end of World War II. And it was the ideology i would mentioned before known as neoliberalism, which is epitomized by the election of Reagan, the election of Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom, Brian Mulroney in Canada. And there was a very conscious shift at that point among policymakers, among public opinion formers, that basically said that the role of the state should be uh, substantially contained, that the role of the state should be limited to enabling markets, to enabling the functioning of capital markets and markets for products and, and all of that, but that the state and government should not play a role in restricting those markets for the purpose of protecting and promoting various public interests, including the education of children or whatever. So it was a, it was a very marked shift. and the education sort of systems beginning to move in the direction that I described began around 1980.
0: That's wild to me that it's so so recently that, it, that our education system has changed so drastically. What is the neoliberal goal for education and what do we mean when we talk about Slider. neoliberalism and yeah. how is neoliberalism influencing our children from an early age?
3: Well, I mean, I think the basic idea in neoliberalism is, you know, as mentioned, that the role of government is to facilitate the functioning of markets. So what that means from the perspective of education is that you need to train workers for those markets and you need to train consumers of the products that those markets create. So you need to school children in the virtues of consumption And I think what that means in terms of public schools is, at a minimum, don't be critical of consumerism. Uh, But beyond that, there are all kinds of alliances between marketers and schools that have developed, certainly over the last 30 years, which exemplify that. So you need to kind of school children in being good consumers, and you need to school children in being good workers, or at least workers that the economy needs. And what that means is, and, and this is very explicit in much of the literature around this, is two or three or four streams of education. You know, obviously you need to train the engineers, the lawyers, the doctors, but you also need to train the people to sweep up and clean up the hospitals and provide, you know, the fast food and everything else. And and so the idea within this way of thinking is that we shouldn't really be giving everybody the same liberal education, but rather we should sectoralize it in much the same way that the economy is sectoralized because our only goal is to, to train people basically to be workers and consumers. I guess a, uh, another kind of goal is to not train people or not school people in the virtues of democracy, in the demands of democratic citizenship in the potential of democratic institutions to actually combine the will of the public and protect the public interest. So that would be kind of the negative side of it. We we need to train workers, we need to train consumers. We basically need to train kids uh, that markets are are really the the only option, that governments have a legitimate role in enabling those markets, but no real legitimate role in constraining those markets in order to protect public interest. So corporations are good, governments are bad markets are good, regulation is bad, so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, a lot, but these are the kinds of trends that you see when you look at fairly mainstream discourse in the United States about, uh, you know, not sort of Tea Party, lunatic right-wing discourse, but mainstream discourse about what we should be doing with schools. There's very little left of a broader sense of, of a liberal education. There's a great book by Diane Ravitch, And she's a former education Mandarin within the Bush administration, but she kind of has a conversion on the road to Damascus and realizes how horrific it all is in the United States. And so she published this book, I guess, about a year ago, and it's called The Death and Life of the American Public School System, something like that. And it's a very, very good account uh, of all of these trends
1: right and and when i hear mainstream discourse coming from people like arnie duncan or obama especially on the higher level it is very much simplified in many ways so you know you can say you're oversimplifying it but in a lot of ways, that is the level of the yeah. discussion. And I never hear anything about expanding the breadth of, of education. It's always whittling it down to meet market needs. And I'm wondering yeah. that w- what is it like for a student who goes through this kind of uh, neoliberal, I guess you could call it indoctrination in many ways, but, but receiving these neoliberal values from a e- very early age. Do you think that they still have the possibility to be innovative and creative in some ways? Or is that innovation constrained within a very small set?
3: you know i'm a i'm an incredible optimist i believe that it's very very hard to completely extinguish the the flame of of humanity and people and i believe that really what this is about is is humanity you know i was I was talking to my 15-year-old son the other day and, you know, he's quite thoughtful and quite aware of, of all these issues, but he's he's not sort of a doctrinaire. He doesn't see himself as an activist, all of this stuff. And and he would just say, I'm really concerned about the public sector in, in the province of British Columbia with, you know, the government doing this and that and the other thing. And it was really coming from his gut. Like he really had this feeling that that this was a bad thing, that doing away with, with public funding of schools schools and education and all of this stuff that this was not the way that that we should be living you know that everybody should have these these rights to an education to proper health care and and this was at a very visceral level it wasn't sort of a, a really an intellectual discussion it was just this feeling and he was he was genuinely concerned you know i i like to believe and and i hope i'm right Um, And I think history, to some extent, vindicates this view that having sustainable communal communities where people care about each other, where there are social structures that ensure that people don't fall through the cracks, where people feel involved in setting the terms of their existence, that these, I think, are are fundamental human compulsions. I think we've kind of lost our way. We've really been beguiled by a... uh, a set of ideas that that serve the interest of the few at the expense of the many and they are beguiling ideas and they they've been wrapped up in notions of freedom and equality that are are somewhat deceptive and that has given them substantial power but i'm i'm confident that at some point the contradiction between those ideas between the messages that you know our best hope is to consume as much as we can of the best brands that we can that the more money we have the better our life will be. That government has no role to play in, in trying to help those who fall through the cracks and if they fall through the cracks it's their own fault. I think all of these ideas are ones that, that sharply contradict our innate senses as human beings about what we need and what we want for ourselves and each other. Um, and so I think in the end, they're not that sustainable. In much the sense, you, know, you can go back and look at history, and you can see people become beguiled by some horrific ideas. Uh, you know, Nazism would be the, the premier example, where they don't see, you know, either they buy into it, or if they don't buy into it, they don't see a choice for challenging it because out of out of fear or a sense of oppression or a lack of imagination, they, they can't see their way out. And so you have this horrific system that somehow maintains and sustains itself for much longer than you would think it should. And and I would say the same about the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. And but then you see the Berlin Wall come down. You see nazism end and you know hopefully anyways not come back so we're very strange when we get together in societies where we seem to be capable of kind of moving in these directions that are directions that don't reflect how we feel and how we see the world as as human beings but somehow we get manipulated beguiled hypnotized whatever it is uh, into going in these directions and i think we're in the middle of that now but i guess i'm i'm optimistic that eventually you know the contradictions become too too great because the power holders overplay their hands. They forget that you actually have to try to find balance and try to legitimate what's going on. And I think we're at that moment now. Uh, the attempts to redistribute wealth to enable people to have a decent life—all those sort of things from the forties and fifties where capitalism was seen as a balance and we talk about social welfareism or welfare capitalism or or whatever, but balance that's created by governments between uh, wealth creation and profit on the one hand. And various social goods on the other, and that, that kind of keeps the whole system going. Uh, workers feel they have some power because they have some tra- they they have trade unions that actually uh, have a say. They have social entitlements. There are redistributive uh, instruments in place, and so the harsher the harsher aspects of capitalism are are kind of muted to that extent, and the system can kind of bumble along in this this uneasy mix. The mixed economy that, you know, social democracy offered for so many years. But now we're kind of moving or we've been moving for the last 30 years uh, into a much more fundamentalist, a much less mixed approach uh, and an approach that says there's only one basic fundamental idea, that it's the market. And we have to, you know, we have to serve that. And if we all serve that, then it will serve us which is literally by definition a a kind of fundamentalism but what that means is that the system has kinda lost its legitimating structures and that makes it somewhat I think vulnerable and I think the Occupy movement is a great example of how that vulnerability has and is continuing uh, to play out in people actually hitting the streets and saying, okay this is going too far
1: and so the vulnerability is created by the strict adherence to the neoliberal agenda
3: Right. I mean, it, it, um, fundamentalisms are inherently unstable, any fundamentalism, because cause as human beings, you know, what fundamentalisms try to do, whether it's communism or whether it's uh, Islamic fundamentalism or uh, Christian fundamentalism or capitalist fundamentalism in the form of neoliberalism, what fundamentalism try to do is they take one aspect of what we are as human beings and they say, OK, that's what we're going to build our society around. So the aspect of ourselves as human beings as, as being self-interested, which we are, you know, that's part of who we are, uh, you know, enjoying consumption. I'm not going to dispute it. I like a good bottle of wine. So these aspects, you know, we're self-interested, we're consumers, um, are part of who we are. What neoliberalism does is it turns that into all of what the society is. So it takes this part and it, it builds a social and economic structure around those ideas of self-interest of consumerism of the freedom of markets of no redistribution of a purely formal equality you know treat everybody the same if they fall through the cracks that's their problem So that makes sense to us at some level which is why it has succeeded but as you increasingly build your society around that one aspect of ourselves all the other aspects of ourselves you know, the side of us that's compassionate, the side of us that's altruistic, the side of us that feel that, that you know, looks at a homeless person and can't really buy into the notion that it's entirely that person's fault that they're on the street, that knows that that's wrong. So so all of a sudden you start to have these contradictions. And so, and any fundamentalism, I mean, we're seeing it in terms of Islamic fundamentalism, in terms of the so-called Eric Spring, we, we saw it in the challenge to East Bloc communism, you know, all of these fundamentalisms are ultimately unstable and we see that they fail. And I don't think that neoliberalism is going to be the one exception in history.
0: Yeah. And it's very interesting watching these fundamentalisms begin to crumble and they start slowly on the edges of society and they, sl- they begin to work their way Into society, we see it in the the examples that you said in in the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement. I wanted to think about more of like when you're a a teacher in a school. If you have a listener of, of this show is listening and they're a teacher, are they able to bring these values into the classroom without reaction from the from the parent? Is it possible to get children to think critically about neoliberal values and the marketing they're exposed to on a daily basis? I mean, can you point to uh, McDonald's or Starbucks, can you use the real world examples to, to show children that their value systems are being manipulated and they're being brainwashed in the same kind of you know overarching context of the family life where their parents are probably very much brainwashed in the same way? How are you able to marry those two dichotomous kind of relationships together?
3: At its best, I think education is is supposed to be doing that, um, especially in a public system. And and I I think that my experience in touring around with my new book, part of which um, looks at the sort of hyper-consumerism of childhood today, my experience has been that a lot of parents, uh, regardless of whether they see themselves as right, left, or center, are really worried and concerned about what they're seeing happening to their kids. And i I don't think that there are lots of uh, of parents who are saying this is a good thing. Uh, again, regardless of their ideology, and it manifests itself in different ways. I mean, in the I, I've been doing a lot of talks in the United states, and and you know, there'll be some some quite conservative people who will really be on board about the extent to which you know sexualization and brutal violence, including misogynist violence, are, are now being sort of pitched to, to younger and younger children because you know it's, it's edgy content and, and kids are attracted to it naturally um, but, but this is now being quite uh, cynically manipulated by marketers these kind of kids' kind of natural curiosities and fascinations with sex and violence in some really kind of nasty ways that I document in the book. And and so, you know, some conservative people will be involved with, it, it will be concerned about that, whereas more liberal people will be concerned maybe about the the over-consumerism, uh, the fact that, that their kids see themselves completely in terms of uh, the brands that they use, uh, the fact that Uh, Their kids are on average, and this is uh, from a, a very good study done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, their kids are spending eight to 10 hours on average a day on commercial media, you know, being pitched basically the consumerist message, the fact that In kids' schools, schools are being used as platforms for marketing. So parents are really worried about this stuff. And to the point where in the United States, both the Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Trade Commission have been staunch advocates of uh, what's called media literacy of schools being involved in educating kids not to be so sort of hypnotized and manipulated by the messages of advertisers and marketers. You know, I, I think there are lots of weaknesses and problems with the approaches that are taken, but suffice it to say that, that this is something that uh, you know that even the federal government in the United States is all over. And and if you go to the Federal Trade Commission's website, they actually have some uh, hyperlinks to websites that they've created that are kind of uh, critical thinking about consumerism um, modules that are designed for kids that and that they encourage teachers to bring into their classrooms. So. You know, so I see this issue as of media literacy. I mean, there is no shortage out there of uh, curriculum packages and and uh, resources that teachers can use to deal with these issues. It's surprising to me that, there, that so few do deal with these issues in a sustained way. I mean, it seems an obvious an obvious issue for a social studies class to study the social that kids are actually a part of. And they're, they're endless resources. I mean, the film, the corporation we have uh, with an education distributor, we've kind of parceled it into various education modules with question and answer workshops and all this kind of stuff. So that in itself has become a curricula package for high schools. And it's used in high schools. And I've actually gone and, and been involved in some Q&A for some high schools that are using it. So so there's a lot going on. I mean, there's a lot of awareness out there, and there's a lot of concern. One of the things that I question in, in my new book is, well, if we're so concerned about it, why don't we regulate it? Why are we saying, well, parents and teachers should do a better job teaching kids about the fact that, you know, they're being targeted for 8 to 10 hours a day? Why don't we go back to what we used to do and say, well, you know, at some age, maybe 8, maybe 9, maybe 12. Uh, it's not really appropriate to bombard kids with the amount of commercialism that we are bombarding them with. So, so maybe we should put some restraints on on what marketers and advertisers can do. You know, and and, and that's a big debate, obviously, and raises all kinds of issues.
5: Wouldn't it be nice if? девочка
7: sixty protests within just two months, and Canada's students' uprising continues unabated. New clashes on Thursday night. The standoff over tuition fee hikes is turning increasingly violent. Centering on the country's second largest city of Montreal, clashes resumed after talks collapsed between student leaders and authorities. Ryan officers charged, mace and, maced and detained dozens of protesters, while the police chief publicly complained that his forces were worn out. The students are incensed over a tuition fee rise, which the government says is necessary.
3: This has profound ramifications. People are very unhappy about the way their political elites are behaving, and they feel that the government is not serving the people at all. It's only serving big financial interests. This is all, th- those are all very repressive methods and it's only going to fuel more discontent, and uh, more and more people are going to join this eventually.
2: Well, it is a very serious uh, situation. Uh, So much so that in the International Labour Organization now in June, we're going to have as a major theme the youth employment crisis and we are characterizing it indeed as a crisis. The numbers are the following. Um, We have out of the 200 million people unemployed uh, worldwide, 75 million are young people. Uh, The youth labour force is around a bit more than 600 million people, but of which more than 150 million, mostly in developing countries, uh,
12: work with their families under one dollar a day of income.
6: The city of Prato in northern Italy is dominated by factories making textiles. They once employed thousands of people. But the recession hasn't been kind to Prato. In recent months, many factories like this one have been forced to close. Italy, like Greece, Spain and Portugal, is in serious financial difficulty. During the boom years of the 1980s, the government here spent too much money and now it has to pay that money back. And for students at the local college, that means jobs here are hard to come by. The school's head teacher says the future looks bleak. I'm not worried only for my students. I'm worried for the whole new generation. I'm a father too so I'm very worried. But travel south to Italy's more rural areas and the problem is much worse. This is Pompeii in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. It's an area traditionally known for its farming and agriculture. Unemployment here has always been high but over the last few years that has jumped and particularly amongst young people aged between 16 and 24. The rate of unemployment is now the highest in Italy and now stands at 42%. But here, instead of protesting about the problems, they're making music. They say it gives them a
13: voice. I think the economic crisis in Italy is really huge. But we have a weapon against the economic crisis. It's the music.
6: Sometimes I work doing small cash and hand jobs to get a bit of money for me and my parents, but it's so difficult to find a job. It's all about who you know. Many here want to leave Italy, but with the crisis now engulfing Europe, finding a job elsewhere could be just as difficult as finding one here.
10: And I teach in a law school where students are coming in and looking for law jobs. What happens is the, the, one's own vulnerability increases. I know I can live on a lot less than I live on, right? A lot less. And so can many other people. But you get pulled into the system and you become part of it. And, you know, you're just, that's just what happens to you. We don't need to do that. I have students, and in Victoria it's particularly strong, who just want to farm. They just want to farm. I wanted me I said, well, I'll see you around. She said, no, you won't. I'm off to farm and I ain't going to be back in the city for a long time. And given the direction, you know, transition towns and all that. Given the direction in which the society is going, I think the number one thing that students, that people need to do, is come up with ways of living that avoid the capital trap. Whether it's living in cooperatives and growing one's own food uh, and keeping one's one's needs lower, it's th- that's where the real the real uh, future lies, and where people, I think. Will be much more satisfied because you don't need all this stuff. Wouldn't it be nice?
1: Wouldn't it be nice? You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Joel Bakken about corporate influence on children, education, and society. One of the things that's also a big part of being a child today is not just tremendous amounts of highly polished media exposure that comes from corporations that want to make money off of your children and instill them with a a lifelong desire for consumerism, it's also a large amount of prescriptions. And so when you were putting your new book together, what did you discover about the state of the medical system and how medical journals and everything else uh, operates in terms of prescriptions for children?
3: What I discovered is that over the last 30 years, the number of children and the number of prescriptions in terms of psychotropic drugs, drugs that are designed to modify behavior and emotions of children, has gone from basically zero to to millions. I mean, in tens of millions, hundreds of millions. In 1980, it was, it was rare for a child and even a teen to be medicated with, with psychotropic drugs. Today, it's, it's almost as common as, as taking antibiotics for a sore throat. Uh, many, many kids, millions, tens of millions, as I mentioned, of kids are, are on various kinds of increasingly powerful and potentially dangerous medications for an, a growing array of alleged disorders. What I argue in, in the book is that I, you know, I don't take the, the quite radical position that some do, that there's no place at all. For prescribing these kinds of drugs to kids. I, I guess my view is that this increase, this this explosion in the number of, of drugs and the number of kids probably is partly related to some positive things, to some positive developments in child psychiatry and to some positive developments in the pharmaceutical sciences. That, you know, I'm willing to acknowledge that that some number uh, within that larger number of children are being appropriately medicated, and that it's making their lives better, and that that reflects and represents events in treating children's mental problems. But at the same time, what I argue in the book is that some other number I mean, I don't know if it's half or 70% or 30%, but Some number of those children are perhaps not being appropriately medicated, that there's a lot of over-medication going on and over-diagnosis, and that the reason for that has a lot to do with some fairly dubious marketing tactics on the part of pharmaceutical companies, A and B, from the fact that over the last 30 years, the pharmaceutical companies have become profoundly involved in conducting research on the very products that they create. So there isn't much independent research being done anymore, uh, and that creates all kinds of problems of manipulating clinical trials and, and so on and so forth, which I talk about at length. And see that the pharmaceutical industry has, has gained undue influence over the medical publication and education systems. So again, that pushes in favor of using their products, when in fact, if you had truly independent science, truly independent education, truly independent publications, you would feel more confident in thinking, you know, that the diagnosis and prescription, the diagnosis of disorders, the prescription of drugs, the various protocols, etc., and so forth, have the necessary scientific validity. They should, but my argument is that they may not. That. There are very good reasons, when you look at how the system produces knowledge about drugs and about mental disorders among children, there are very good reasons to feel that the the field is tilted uh, in favor of trying to sell more drugs and trying to write more prescriptions. And and that is a real difficulty, a real problem, and I I devote two chapters to that in my book. You
1: mentioned dubious uh, marketing practices, what do you mean there? by on behalf of pharmaceutical companies getting these drugs Uh, into doctor's offices?
3: I look at a a whole bunch of them. I mean, I I look at the role that drug reps play in waiting to see doctors. Uh, A drug rep is a person who's hired by a pharmaceutical company usually to represent a a particular drug. Uh, They schedule appointments or they just kind of lurk in doctor's offices with free samples of the drug and with, of course, the latest papers uh, and research produced usually by the drug company itself showing how wonderful the drug is and use often fairly, again, dubious tactics like uh, providing gifts to doctors, learning about doctors' sort of extracurricular interests and chatting them up about that, taking them out for dinner, taking them to fancy golf resorts, and even having sex with them in some cases. I mean, I I talk about in the book um, the preponderance of former and current cheerleaders who have been hired by drug companies to work as as drug reps? Seriously? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's it's well documented in the book. There's actually a, a company that is devoted solely to the task of brokering uh, jobs between current and former cheerleaders and drug companies. It's called Spirited Sales Limited. You can go to the website. They are basically <laughs> hired by pharmaceutical companies to you know recruit cheerleaders for uh, for jobs as drug reps so so that but that's just one area i mean then there's the area of ghost writing where companies will hire a doctor pay the doctor handsomely to put the doctor's name on a study that the doctor had nothing to do with writing or researching when in fact the study was was written and researched um, by the company itself. Doctors are paid handsomely to give talks that are allegedly scientific at continuing medical education conferences to their colleagues, talking about how great this or that drug is when their colleagues don't necessarily know that they're on the payroll of a drug company. And I guess most importantly, and I talk about this at length, is as a result of certain legal changes, again, in the early 1980s, drug companies have become much more involved in the research on the efficacy and side effects of their products. Uh, And there are some very disturbing stories that I tell in the book about companies actually repressing, actually hiding, burying adverse studies. I tell the story of a a girl named Caitlin McIntosh, who at the age of 12 hangs herself at school. Uh, She's being medicated with a drug called Zoloft and another one called Paxil. And long story short, uh, nobody knew at the time that those drugs could increase by three times the risk of suicide when they're taken by young people. Well, somebody knew it. The drug company knew it because that was the result of studies that the drug company itself had done. But the drug company simply sat on that data. Uh, There's no law that says it has to publish studies that turn out negative. Um, And that's a real problem. And I talk about that at length. And... Not to mention just the various ways that a clinical trial can be uh, manipulated and real concerns that, uh, that often clinical trials on these drugs are, you know, sort of tilted towards again. I, I mean, ideally, you, you want a clinical trial to be run by a disinterested researcher. Um, because there are just too many ways that you can kind of rig the data or massage the results. But the problem is when a pharmaceutical company is running these uh, a clinical trial, it has an interest in the outcome. And, you know, science isn't done best when it's being done by people who have actual financial interests in what the outcome of a study is going to be. So I say, well, you know, when you take all of this together, this is a system that's broken. Uh, this is a system that is yielding results that can't necessarily be trusted.
1: So a drug could have serious negative impacts and then that drug could continue to be used because the pharmaceutical company would not be obligated to publish those negative clinical trials?
3: Uh, That is correct. There's no law that says drug companies have to publish negative clinical trials. As of 2007, partly in response to the scandals concerning the burying of data, The United States created, uh, we don't have it in Canada yet, but the United States created a public registry of uh, clinical trials. So any company that's doing a clinical trial has to put that fact up on this public registry that's accessible to consumers and doctors. But the problem is, I, I mean, it's a great first step, but there isn't enough information on the public registry and it isn't presented in a way that, that that really can do the job of ensuring that consumers and doctors really know what's going on. But it is a useful first step, and hopefully it'll be seen as a first step rather than a last.
0: You know, even the studies that are not actually done by the drug companies are usually sponsored. By the drug companies, by other institutions, that's an interesting, interesting point. Well,
3: well, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, and it's it's a whole sort of very intricate continuum. From on the one hand, a study that's done purely by an independent researcher in a public institution. To at the at the far end, studies that are done in house at pharmaceutical companies. And in between, uh, you have sort of everything else along that continuum, including a new phenomenon of clinical research organizations, are called CROs, and those are for-profit private companies that are basically engaged by pharmaceutical companies to run clinical trials. And there are all kinds of problems there as well because often they run those clinical trials in um, developing countries where there are very minimal kinds of regulatory frameworks in place and there have been some notorious abuses of uh, subjects in those trials. Um, subjects who are poor and often are are lured by the promise of free drugs, et cetera, and so forth. But they are, in effect, guinea pigs for drugs that often have dangerous side effects. So so there's that whole other issue, uh, which I also talk about in the book at length.
0: And we could spend probably hours talking about the psychology that goes into drugs and all of the studies that surround them. We wanted to close out by talking about video games. And, you know, you know the fact that most of these drugs that these children take could be mitigated or prevented even by regular exercise. And children are, you know, more and more turning to video games and electric electric gaming systems these days. Instead of going outside and playing with their friends, they're sitting in front of their computers and their televisions. It's led to a set more sedentary lifestyle and it's led yeah. to less interactions between children. Uh, should there be some kind of age limit on video games restrictions that, that that prevent children from spending so much of their free time in front of computers and video systems?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, complicated issue and it's one that we obviously can't answer very quickly, but suffice it to say you're absolutely right that. All of these issues interrelate among themselves. I mean, there's some recent studies have shown that when kids use Facebook on a kind of compulsive basis, that they're always on Facebook, that it actually can lead to depression, Uh, you know. And then, so then you have a depressed kid, and that kid is then diagnosed with depression and therefore in need of psychotropic drugs, and on goes the spiral. That if our kids are leading relatively unhealthy lifestyles, sedentary lifestyles, they're Uh, bombarded uh, not only with media, but in consumerism, but with violence, with over-sexualization. I mean, there's good psychological evidence that that girls are developing eating disorders and self-esteem issues as sexualization increases in the commercial culture that, that they're exposed to. Then when you add to that the nutritional aspects, you add to that the various chemicals, and this is another issue that I talk about in the book, synthetic chemicals that kids are exposed to in their food, that kids are exposed to in the environment. You then add to that the amount of sugar and fat that kids are, are eating, that they're becoming obese. I mean, it is an incredibly unhealthy world that we are exposing children to and that we are creating for children. So video games is, is a part of that. And then the question is, what do we do about all of this? And, you know, one answer to that is it's really up to parents to, to deal with these issues. And one of the main points I try to make in my book is I actually think, that the problems are, are much larger than parents can address. And I say this as a parent, watching one of my own kids become pretty well addicted to Facebook, unable to sort of stay away from it and, and thinking as a parent, what, what can I do about this? And so I guess you know, my book is one large argument for the fact that we as a society have to address these issues. We have to think about what the limit should be on companies that are trying to get money out of us and our children, whether by selling drugs or by selling consumerism or by selling products or by putting chemicals into the environment or by taking over the running of schools or by using child labor. It's another issue I look at in the book. To what extent should kids be seen as a resource for profit-making, especially when it's harmful to their health and their well-being? That's really the fundamental question. And the answer is, we have to decide that as a society, and then we have to do something about it. We can't simply say, well, we'll just let corporations target kids as much as they want, and it's really up to parents to protect them from that. Parents can't protect them from that, and some parents don't protect them from that, or don't want to, or don't see the need to. But the fact is, this is still a social problem, and it's it's a problem about the very nature of childhood that we are constructing as a society.
1: Do you think that the way parents can start addressing that is through some form of activism, or no, that's been- what I
3: say? That's what I say. What I say is, you know, if, if we're really going to be good parents today, as if it's not, you know, as if there isn't enough to do in addition to being to, to making the best parenting decisions that we can, we also have to become good citizens. We also have to become activist citizens in trying to alter, to trying to shift the conditions in which we're making parenting decisions. Because, because needless to say, those conditions have a profound impact on what decisions we can make, what decisions we feel we can make, and how we can be effective uh, in being good parents. So good parenting means becoming politically active around these issues. I can't logically see any other solution.
1: And that wraps up our interview with Joel Bakken and in order to expand on some of the concepts that we were covering related to education we have Laurette Lynn of the Unplugged Mom show on the extra environmentalist today to talk about some of her ideas and some of her approaches to education that she has picked up into topics of alternatives to the mainstream school system that we have in the
2: United States
5: the tried to name our babies but we forgot all the names that
1: We were talking with Joel about how old ideas seem to avoid any challenges. And for some reason, they're just not challenged. And then there's that Berlin Wall moment where it comes down and everyone realizes that even though the system had been broken for a long time, even the USSR had been declining for a very long time. It's like you hit this break point where it just kind of falls apart. And so you cover a lot of uh, topics of education and alternative education and issues with the education system on your show. And I was wondering uh, if we could start out by talking about what that looks like in terms of, of education, because we were talking with you all about the corporate education issues and how, you know, it's these testing companies that benefit oftentimes from No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and all of these programs. And other issues with the educational system. But I'm wondering if there's any kind of foreseeable paradigm shift in education and what would that look like?
11: You know, I think it's been happening. I think the shift has been happening. I want to believe that there is going to be some kind of grandiose moment where everyone collectively just wakes up in one fell swoop and proverbially tears down the wall, so to speak. And, you know, I'm always thinking about actually Pink Floyd's the wall when I think about that. And, you know, we don't need no education and thought control. But I don't know if it's going to be that big. I I don't know if it's going to be that quick in one fell swoop like that. Uh, The good news, though, is that I think the paradigm has been shifting, that it's already been happening. And the reason is because things like this all throughout history, when We are in a situation, and by we, I mean human beings. I don't mean just you and I, but I mean human beings and human race. When we find ourselves in situations where we are being controlled and where our freedom and our our personal freedom is being suppressed, We have a tendency to figure it out at some point and to rise up against it. And this happens over and over again in history. And I'm going to go back to an interview I did just recently with Susan Weisbauer, who actually happens to be uh, an expert in classical education and critical thinking. And by no coincidence was home educated herself and advocates for education. People that can think critically are often more intellectually free, which helps, of course. So so I asked her this cliche question in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, why does history repeat itself? And her answer was not very tongue-in-cheek. I actually enjoyed her answer because she pointed out that history doesn't in fact repeat itself. History is different as time goes on. It's us that repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again, and we find ourselves in the same oppressive situations over and over and over again because we don't learn. And that's something I find very interesting about humanity, and it's something that we might not be able to change But we can certainly learn from and improve upon as time goes by. And my point is that things like this have been happening all throughout history. We can trace it back to ancient Rome. We can trace trace it back to ancient Greece or ancient Egypt, even, where there have been attempts made by corrupt and overblown governments. And of course, the corrupt and overblown governments are always tied in to some kind of business, uh, whether it be our modern form of capitalism or the ancient form of capitalism. There was always money involved and superior wealth involved. And it suppressed the rest of the people and oppressed their freedom. So, But whenever humanity finds themselves in that situation, they do eventually figure it out and they do rise up against it. So that gives me hope. History gives me hope. I don't know if it'll just keep happening, but history gives me hope. As far as specifically education and the problematic issues that we're seeing today with education, I think the paradigm is already shifting. And I think that is largely due to the accessibility of information that we have today. And that's using the tools of the internet and social media and networking and communication. We're able to really talk to each other and show each other what the problems are and not rely so heavily on just the media to tell us what's going on with the school system so we can see it for ourselves in other areas and not just our own area. And we're beginning to say, hey, something's not right here. I see from my end, because I am a home education advocate and I am in this world of alternative education, I'm able to see from my perspective this great exodus from the school system and the growth amount of families, it's uh, over 2 million strong now in America that are leaving the school system and taking education into their own hands. That's what I think is going to lead to uh, the self implosion of the school system and the establishment of something better.
1: So parents are really starting to wake up?
11: Oh, yeah. Parents are starting to wake up much at at an alarmingly increasing rate. And when I say alarming, it's actually a good thing for me, but a bad thing for the oppressive school system.
0: (laughs) Uh, Do you think that this waking up is a direct result to to a world that is that is no longer being receptive to what has traditionally been the, the path that children take going to school, then getting a job, then, you know, joining the workforce, those kind of things. Is it, is, it a, is it a a destruction of this dream, of this paradigm that we have held for so long? Is that what what's making it fall apart?
11: That is contributing, yes. There are a number of factors contributing, but I think that that is a large contributor because we're beginning to evolve from that Paradigm, we're beginning to evolve past it as a culture, as a race, and we're beginning to see that that is not necessarily a quality life. And we're beginning to realize that when we use the term real world, maybe a few decades ago, When your parents said to you, well, you have to prepare for the real world, the idea that they may have had in mind is what you just described. You go to school and you get good grades and you graduate and you go to college and you get good grades there and you get a nice job and you get the corner office. And, you know, the bigger the office and the fancier the suit, the better status you had in life. And you could get a nicer white picket fence and live the American dream, so to speak. Now, on the surface, that seems like a lovely life. But I think you have to let Last few decades, We're realizing that that's it's all an illusion. It's it's not real. It's a very forced and contrived and cookie cutter kind of life. And it doesn't make people very happy on the inside, because what we're having when we pursue that is we're having, you know, an, an estimate of one in five adult Americans on some kind of psychotropic drug to deal with depression and anxiety, so they need medication just to get themselves through their own lives, to get them th- themselves through the day. We're seeing everybody in economic crisis where we're in enormous debt and we ha- we're enslaved to credit cards and we're completely handcuffed to our paychecks. We feel that we can't get by without an ever-increasing paycheck, and that's not happening because the economy is breaking down and people are getting laid off. So things are really just a mess, and we're stressed and we're sick. We're We're physically sick, we're mentally sick, we're emotionally sick, we're spiritually confused. And that's the society that has been born of this whole supposedly idealistic American dream life. So people are starting to see that for what it is and see that it's not the real world. It's a very artificial reality. And just like artificial junk food, it's making us sick. It's not nutritious. So we're saying, okay, how did we get here? How did we get to this point where we are so sick and are so controlled and are so dependent on a a failing economic system? We got here because we've been conditioned to be here. We've been trained to be here, and we've been trained in the school system. That's what teaches us to be here. The uh, school system right now is not about education. It's not about critical thought. It's about conditioning, and it's about training to be dependent and enslaved to the great marriage between big corpora and overblown political interest. So we've become so enslaved and dependent on that that it's actually been bad for us. Uh, and I think more and more people are starting to see that because we're able to communicate with each other and not depend on, you know, just one form of media. And we're able to kind of break out of it just by knowing it exists, if that makes sense. You know, knowledge is power. And Calling a cow a cow and seeing it for what it is, we're able to avoid that trap and being ensnared by it. And, you know, generation by generation, the less kids that we have indoctrinated by the time, hopefully, that we have our grandchildren, we'll see a whole different world. And I'm hoping a better world.
0: Justin and I are both direct products of this education system. And I'm sure you went through it as well.
11: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what does the future of education look like? And how do we learn to avoid making the same mistakes that we've made over and over and over again throughout the years? What's it going What's going to change in humanity? What clicks on in our brains that makes us see the, the system that's, that's happening and the, the same patterns that we keep repeating? What is going to change that's going to make us realize this?
11: Well, the good news is that we've really only been repeating these patterns for the last 100 years, which is a long time, and it's uh, for our lifetime and our parents' lifetime. But compulsory schooling, as we know it today, was born in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And it wasn't really, the origins of it weren't really about educating the children and and giving them a, a proper or really quality education or you know, to to perpetuate critical thought. The purpose was to condition them. We had President Wilson in 1909 uh, quoted as having said, we want one class to have a liberal education. We want another class, a very much larger class of necessity to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit them to perform specific, difficult manual tasks. So that right there tells us what the purpose was of the compulsory education system that we have today. Now, being that it's been about 100 years and we're starting to see now, like I said before, that it's done nothing but ruin us. It's It's something that we can change relatively easily. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's easy, but it is easy because it's still in its uh, infant stages. And we can break out of it by simply by knowing that it exists and avoiding it before that. And it's interesting to note that the industrial revolution that gave rise to the corrupt capitalism that we know today, those founding, people that 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 really gave rise to that industrial revolution were not products of compulsory schooling but we are and we're the ones that are being used and manipulated by that system so that's something very interesting to look at now as far as the future of education i can't say for sure because no one can predict the future but i am cautiously hopeful that we are all headed in the right direction because we're seeing that it's hurting our children and more and more people are realizing that. So my fantasy, and I think a lot of people share this this vision, is that school will no longer be compulsory or mandated, and that really frees up the boundaries of of contrived education and puts it back in the hands of the parents and the community so that we can focus more on critically thinking education and a real quality education that stimulates the mind and that adheres to a child's natural ability to learn instead of being forced against the grain and just being fed information that we're expected to regurgitate and then measured on that. Right. So as we move toward this freedom and we move toward this non compulsory, non mandated, non institutionalized model, um, I think that we'll see an increase in community thought and people just being more human to each other and charity. And we'll see an improvement in the economy. We'll see an improvement in the environment. We'll see an improvement overall in humanity because when we're not forced and the information isn't controlled, we have a a primal and instinctual desire to want to learn and to want to know and to want to explore and understand our world and then communicate that world. So... Critical thought and logic is actually very, very instinctual. It's very natural. The problem is that it's not fostered in the school system. So if the compulsory school system goes away, or if we're simply just not participating in it, we can adhere to that natural ability and grow to think more critically. And that enables us to love our fellow human in a lot more obvious way than we currently do. So I think that Improving that will improve humanity. You know, I, I yeah. had this conversation the other day, and I actually said, "Drop out of school and save the world because I believe that. I believe that if we get out of this paradigm, we can really help improve the world dramatically.
1: But if I tell that to, you know, my parents or or my grandparents, and it's like, hey, you know, pretty soon, uh, in, in a few years, I'm going to have kids and I want them to not go to school and get a liberal education. If if I say that, they're going to say, whoa, hold on, you don't want them to go to school and you want them to get a liberal education. Does that mean you you want them to go watch Michael Moore documentaries, right? Uh-huh. So, So I don't know how to really get that message across to the general public to say you know, compulsory schooling is bad and it's causing all these problems because a lot of people think that compulsory schooling is important. And they look at the dropout rate in a lot of inner cities and they say, you know, that's the real problem. You got to get people back into school and make them want to be in school even more. What what do you say to those people?
11: Well, to answer that question, I'm going to ask you a question, if that's okay, first. If I was just to ask you now, how would you define Liberal education. Hearing the word "liberal" and mixing it with the word "education," what does your brain automatically want to describe that as?
1: I don't know. If, for me, it sounds like
0: uh, like freedom, like free and open. It, yeah, yeah. That's usually what "liberal" means to me.
11: Right. Well, the word the word "liberal" comes from the Latin root of the word, which means freedom. It means to liberate, and it's also no coincidence that it's the same word we use for library or to book reading, okay, because freedom starts with the minds, freedom starts with knowing. And if you control the knowledge, then you control freedom. So these things are no coincidence. When we talk about a liberal education, I remember when I was in high school and I was growing up um, and... The thought would go around about liberal education and people would say that they're going to go to college to study the liberal arts. That was actually frowned upon when I was a kid. And people would say, well, you can't just study the liberal arts. You know, you have to pick something specific and you have to get, a, you know, bachelor of science degree or, you know, some kind of degree that, that dealt with something very specific. You can't just like... A flake about and study liberal arts. I came to believe that it was something flaky, that people didn't really pick any anything specific if they were getting a liberal education. In the recent years, maybe in even the last couple of years, I'm realizing that, that the word has been hijacked. And the word has this connotation that as soon as you say liberal arts, you think left-wing, and you think uh, neoliberalism, and you think about politics. And that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's an unfortunate result of our canned indoctrination, because we been bred to see the world in this way, and it's not necessarily true. When we say liberal arts, we're actually talking about a very classical and critically thinking education because the classical education that teaches critical thinking, it's based on the concept of the trivium, which is an ancient concept dating back to Aristotle, okay? And you begin by giving a young human being the foundation. And the foundation is very specifically the mechanics of language, language arts. And we're literally talking about grammar and the structure of language. And then you move on a little bit further as they get older into the very basic fundamental concepts of mathematics. Then they go through puberty and you start introducing them to logic and thinking. So they're using the foundation, the mechanics of language. They're using that now to understand their world and to find contradictions and to think logically. Once they get through that stage and they get into young adulthood and their late teens, now this is when a person's brain is ripe and ready for what we consider to be the liberal arts. And that's the study literally of culture and arts and psychology and philosophy and things that are outside of just the basic fundamentals, uh, such as grammar and uh, arithmetic. They know how to read. They know how to write. They know how to think because they've gone through the logic stage. Now they're able to study all the other things in the world. This is important in order for us to really understand our world and communicate our world. This, however, is something that is not going on in schools today. Now, the reason it's important is because it's actually more natural. We're wired this way as human beings. We're wired as young children to want to understand and want to discover our world. And language helps us do that. So the mechanics of language is important. Then we want to find the contradictions. That's why teenagers are the way they are and they're argumentative and they're oppositional. Because in that stage of our lives, we want to find the contradictions and we demand a more thorough understanding of our world. And then when you get into your your young adulthood, that's why we find that young adults are often found in poetry bars and whatever else, because they're philosophizing and they're pondering existence. This is a very natural flow. Okay, School kind of ruins this and makes this a grotesque version of it so it's not right. But here's the answer to your question, and I had to give all this foundation so that I can answer the question. The reason that when you make this suggestion to the average mainstream person, the reason they reject it is because they've been trained to reject it. We have been trained as a society to accept that school is normal. This is the normal process of life. You get married you have a baby, they turn four years old, you give them to school and you say, you know what, I have no idea about education, even though I'm a product of education myself, I have no idea. Somehow I've gone through all these years of schooling and I have a degree in college and everything else. And yet I'm a complete dunce and I can't teach my child how to read and write and basic arithmetic. So I'm going to give them to the school system to do it for me. And we think that this is perfectly normal because we've accepted it as normal. And then they spend the most formidable years of their lives, their childhood, for 15 years in this system just so that they can get some kind of paper validation that proves that they're worthy as a person so that they could go into the system and they can get into debt and they can be enslaved to consumerism and credit card debt and everything else, find a spouse and get married and have a kid and put their kid into the same system so that when anybody comes and challenges that, it shakes them out of their comfort zone. So I'm used to this, guys. You know, I go to people and I shake them up all the time and I say, Get out of school. Drop out of school. Don't do drugs. Stay out of school is the title of my book. It's pretty harsh. And people I'm used to people responding to me that way and saying, oh, what are you talking about? You're crazy. It's because I'm challenging everything that they've been taught to believe is true. You're shaking up people's comfort zone and you're you're yanking the plug is what you're doing. And it's very uncomfortable when that first happens. Now, we talked in our last conversation a little bit about Plato's cave. Right. And it's the same idea. You yank somebody out of the cave and you show them the light and they go, oh, it's too bright. It's too bright. No, 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 no. Give me back my sunglasses. I don't want to see this. You're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. But if that person chooses to stay out there, then your eyes adjust. And then all of a sudden you're able to see reality and truth and there's no going back. Once that happens, there's no going back. It happened to me too. I thought the idea of homeschooling was outrageous. I thought it was crazy. My husband thought I was out of my mind, but I I was persistent because I didn't think that school was good enough for my child. Especially living in New York City at the time, the the local school system there was just horrendous. There was fifty kids in a class, crime. It was terrible. So in said, private you know, schools,
1: so expensive.
11: Well, private school was very expensive. It wasn't completely out of our league at the time, but we just felt, is this really? We're paying a lot of money here. Is this going to be worth the money? So what I did was I went to the local private school. Public school was out of the question because it was terrible. I went to the local private schools, a couple of them, and I said, all right, what do you got for me? I'm going to pay you all this money. What are you going to do for my child? And I wasn't impressed. And I said, look, I have my child home. She's going on four and she's already reading very at a very, very basic level, kind of hat, cat, sat kind of thing, but still she was doing it. She's reading, she knows her alphabet, she speaks well, and she knows basic counting and colors and you know everything else. And they would say, Well, our curriculum is uh, learning how to count to 10 and recognizing the alphabet. And I'd say, okay, but she's beyond that. So what do you do with her? I'm paying you thousands of dollars a year. How are you going to foster her education? And the answer was the same no matter what even in the private schools, they would say, well, she has to just start with the rest of the kids and she has to learn to conform. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm not okay with that. Because all I saw was a child that's going to be bored to tears. And by the time she's eight years old, they're going to suggest Ritalin because she's out of control because she's bored to tears. And then someone said to me, well, in the school, they said, well, almost in an angry way, how is it that she already knows how to read? And I didn't understand the question. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm her mother. I'm her mother and and we learned the alphabet. I don't know. I, I It just seems so natural to me. I taught her how to, you know, walk and, you know, how to use the, the potty and how to brush her teeth. It's just natural. We're reading books together and she wanted to know what the words were. So what's the problem? That's when someone said to me, maybe you're right for homeschooling. I told them they were crazy. But after a few months, I said, well, what choice do I have? I'm not going to put my daughter into these crazy schools. And then as the years went by, I came so adamant about it that I began advocating for it. So the basic answer to the question is that people don't like to hear it because it's uncomfortable. But you know what? Too bad because people need to know. And sometimes we need to be shaken out of our comfort zone to recognize how to obtain our own freedom. And freedom starts with knowing. Freedom starts with truth to be liberated, to know means to be liberated so in order to be free we have to know and that will eventually change the way we perceive our world change the way we perceive what real life actually is change how we pursue our own happiness and what happiness means and realize that that means not being indebted to consumerism and 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 to these capitalist companies and you know not being a slave to this system but being really free to make our own decisions and decide for ourselves what a real happy life means, because nobody should have the right to decide that for us. We need to decide that for ourselves.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the topics we cover on our show as well make people uncomfortable. And so I wanted to ask in in closing out this discussion for now, is there any hope for the rest of us? We've been through the school system and we've been bred in these particular ways of thinking about issues. And our school system didn't necessarily equip us with how to use logic to deal with these very complex issues, the kinds of issues that we cover on our show. And what can we do if we've come through the school system and we see the problems and we're like, whoa, I have no logical thinking skills whatsoever. How can we actually start cultivating those?
11: Well, the first step is in acknowledging it. The first step is acknowledging that, you you know, you may not be equipped in the way that you thought you were and moving forward from there. And like they say, you know, knowledge, knowledge is the first step, but, you know, denial is the problem. So acknowledging it is the first step. And that's what I found to be true with me. So you're already on your way. And, you know, your show does do that. You challenge uh, conventional concepts and you challenge compulsory thinking. And, you know, that that is you're kind of headed in the right direction anyway. As far as pursuing a, a better education and more knowledge and pursuing critical thought, you can do this on your own. You you can you don't need someone to put that into you or to download that into you. And that's the whole idea of independent education and home education is that as human beings, we're equipped to learn we have what we need to learn all on our own. If, it, if it's not controlled and not, not contrived and not oppressed, we will do that naturally and, and figure out how to do that naturally. The problem with critical thinking is that if we kind of go in that direction from the time we're children, it's very natural and it's very easy because children are ripe for it. Like I said, we've already been so conditioned and our brains are already at this point now as, as adults that it's hard for us to take a few steps backwards and start from square one again, and it almost feels like it's a push like against our grain. But getting through that initial wall, so to speak, all you need to do is remove a couple of bricks and then it becomes easy. I started my own pursuit of reformatting my brain for critical thought. And the more I read and the more I understand and the more I uh, investigate the principles behind trivium and the principles behind logic, the easier it becomes. So it's almost like it's difficult at first, but then it becomes easier and easier as you move along. And you start to feel s- such a sense of peace and such a sense of joy and such a sense of happiness because it really does feel like you're being liberated, like you're seeing the world in a perspective that you've never seen it before. And all of a sudden it looks beautiful despite all the problems with the economy and all the problems with society and you know these useless wars that we're in and these oil crises and everything else. You're able to see the problems, recognize that they're there, but suddenly you have so much more hope because you realize how beautiful and magnificent each human being is and how much potential for greatness we have. When our mind is free. So it's a beautiful thing and it's a worthy thing. Now, if I'm going to make specific suggestions, you can simply pick up books on logic and critical thinking and go that route and, you know, kind of pursue it on your own. But the idea, the simplest idea is to just recognize that we've been conditioned. And that's it. Once you recognize it, that's your weapon against it. Because then when somebody comes at you with some kind of compulsory idea, you can think about it and say, yeah, you know what? I don't think that's right. And uh, I'd rather maintain my personal responsibility, freedom and joy in this life.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Lorette. And how can our listeners find your show?
11: Well, it's easy. Unpluggedmom.com, www.unpluggedmom.com. And all the information you need to know about my show, about me, is right there. We do um, occasional live shows through Blog Talk Radio, and that can be accessed on Block Talk Radio slash Unplugged Mom Radio, or you can just simply go to unpluggedmom.com. And like I said, all the information is right there. There's also lorettelynn.com, and I have some of my biographical information there, as well as the books and other audio presentations I have coming up, and you can always find me on Facebook just by putting in Lorette Lynn. So I'm pretty easy to find, and I'm pretty accessible. If you email info at lorettelynn.com, I usually try to respond to most of the emails that I get. Either me or my assistant will always acknowledge and respond to our emails.
1: Awesome. And you've got a book coming out?
11: I have a book coming out. It's coming out a little bit later than I had anticipated because the uh, editing process is taking longer than I, I guess I thought it would. And being that I am first and foremost a mom of three children, that takes up the bulk of my time, you know, and spring is theater season and rehearsal season and baseball season. So, you know, there's a lot going on. It's taking a little bit longer than I thought. So it's not going to be out by the 1st of May. I'm hoping to have it out by the end of June, though, because I'd like to challenge all the parents that are thinking about going to school coming September to not go to school. And the book is called Don't Do Drugs, Stay Out of School.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much, Lorette. wraps up our episode with Joel Bakken and Lorette Lynn, and so we've touched on a lot of different topics in terms of corporations and the neoliberal mindset that's imposed in our education system with both Joel and Lorette. I wanted to dive back into one of the topics from Joel Bakken's interview in how he was talking about power holders forget that they have to find balance and then they overplay their hands. And so in our last episode with Steve Keen, we talked a lot about austerity and the ways that the economics of austerity are going to fail. What's happening is that all across Europe, governments that are in power are overplaying their hands and they're causing people to suffer and their livelihoods to completely fall apart. I'm wondering how we can start talking about ways to move forward now that more and more people are understanding that their governments are completely out of touch
0: when it comes to economic reality. Yeah, and we see these themes again and again. These are the old power structures Trying to hold on to that last little bit of power that they have. And as these systems change, as our economic system changes, as our media landscape changes, as our education models change, it requires a whole different sort of power structure and a whole different sort of leadership and a whole different way of dealing with these models to really take advantage of all the new technology and, and all the new ways of thinking. We see again and again how the music industry is just struggling to take advantage of the internet. I mean, Apple iTunes has just destroyed the model of CDs and even DVDs to a large extent. Companies like Netflix are just destroying what Blockbuster and movie theaters used to have a monopoly on. And it's up to us to find new ways to make these systems work in these new landscapes and make them Viable once again because there's still demand for these services. Education, entertainment through movies, and these types of communications are still very, very relevant in our world. It's just they've changed and they're becoming more about personalization and more about on demand than it is about going out to a store. And so that's why it's really
1: exciting that so many people are diving into alternative media projects. There's so many amazing podcasts out there. We just got an email from Tom O'Brien, who launched the Alpha to Omega podcast, and he's covering issues of alternative economic viewpoints and politics and science and philosophy. He shouted out to us as one of his influences along with Camo of the Realm podcast and Doug Lane of the Diet Soap podcast. And it's really exciting to see more and more people diving into the alternative media sphere, even though despite all the challenges that technology provide for us, one of the things that they do allow us to do is create and produce media that has a lot of the same values as professional media but talking about things that actually have relevance because the mainstream is so devoid of important, meaningful discussions. And they're always pitching the same types of media experts against the other same types of media experts and not having the kinds of discussions that we're able to have on our podcast. Now, that's not to say there's other great media outlets out there. I mean, I follow a lot of stuff that RT does, and they are just putting out incredible pieces of media that has all the same production quality that you'd see on a Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. When you go to all our podcasts, a lot of other shows out there, and they're having these discussions about really the heart of the issues that we're facing in today's societies, it's because more and more people are starting to wake up to the fact that their media is not serving them and giving them the tools that they need to try and discuss these things and think about them critically. With the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention coming up in the United States, when I was back in Charlotte, North Carolina, I met up with a few friends to talk about some of the steps that they're taking to help unaccredited media like us gain access to the people who are actually governing the country of the United States. And hopefully what they're doing can be a model for any other time that any type of government is holding any kind of sum or convention, because what it will be able to do is let people start asking the kinds of questions that we ask of people like Steve Keen and Joel Bakken, but to the people who are actually governing and have the power in society. I'm here in the studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Matt Tendall, Desiree Kane, and Justin Ruckman, the team behind the people, which is getting ready for the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte this September, September 3rd through 6th. And the people is a way for unaccredited media to gain access to the convention and to work with everything that's going on at the Democratic National Convention. It's really going to be an unprecedented way for the community to engage with these monolithic party structures in a way that's never happened at a convention before. And so, I wanted to ask you guys what it's been like to work with such a big party that's used to dealing with CBS, with NBC, with all of these big media names, and jumping in there and saying, look, we're going to provide a way For citizens who are engaged and really care passionately about the political process, to start speaking with the people who are directing the policies and creating the policies that are running our society.
4: Everyone knows, especially uh, the powers that be, know that it's important now more so than ever to reach out to the online community at large, um, and specifically the folks that may not have the traditional routes of access to events like this, like political conventions. Now that being said there isn't a whole lot of precedent for how to really effectively accomplish that kind of outreach and that kind of large-scale accessibility in a way that isn't a total goat rodeo, right? (laughs) Right. Um, And that's kind of where we're coming from, is that this is something that certainly our generation is kind of uniquely positioned to solve, or to at least attempt to solve. And the way we're doing that is not by recreating the wheel so much as it is building upon previous instances of this type of thing around other large-scale events in the past, like the Olympics and the past DNC, taking all that and sort of on our own addressing the the solution to these problems, giving space to bloggers and making sure they have what they need while they're here.
1: And so much of the discourse in the mainstream is controlled by the kinds of questions that are being asked. And so do you think that this process is going to allow uh, people to ask really tough questions tough questions of, of their uh, prospective politicians, their current politicians.
8: I, I think people are already asking those questions out in masses. It's just nobody has a camera pointing to those people asking those questions. So I think that gives us a good opportunity to get the people with cameras and the people asking questions and put them in a room together or, you know, find each other and, and put that out to the masses, as well as engage with political leaders, NGO leaders, corporate leaders, you know, maybe put them in a room full of 200 bloggers and get questions fired at them, the tough questions and the ones they might not hear from the major news outlets.
1: And so do you think that by giving this access, it's, it's going to be part of the change and revolution that we've been looking for in our political process by getting people who are untrained journalists themselves, perhaps, or or bloggers, to be able to go in there and, and actually start in- engaging with the political process in a new way and changing the dialogue around the media?
4: I think it's part of it. I think that too often there's like a cloud of excuses that follow around you know, one community's attempts to get access to another one. And one of the biggest sort of pain points for the independent media blogging, community, photographers, filmmakers, whatever that may be, is that at events of this scale, they don't have the, the simple basic necessities that other more traditional media outlets are afforded. Just simple access to power and access to the internet and a place to sit down and like write up a post or edit some video. So these are the kind of things that if we can help to at least put them on the same playing field as the more traditional folks that it starts to break down all the walls between these perceived different types of media and make it more about what you're
1: saying than the way you got to that point to be able to say it. And how do you think engaging with the political process is different for our generation than for maybe our parents' generation or the the generation right before us? Because we're coming at this from such a different perspective. You know, our our parents' generation, there are much more jobs readily available. And you could go to a university and get a degree. And it was almost like you were expecting to go out and get a job in the workforce. And now things are really different. They're really changing. And what does that do for how our generation
13: engages with the political process. Well, you know, back for when our parents were activists, they were the bra burners if they were extreme women's lib, or they would take out into the streets. What's happening now is people are taking to the internet to really find their voice, because sometimes people can't hear through the emotion of a physical act of activism, right? They don't hear past what, they don't get to the message. I think that the internet has really allowed a clear message to resonate because people have time to think about what they're trying to say rather than going out and holding a sign.
4: I feel like the populace and its ability to express themselves via the Internet is almost, I feel like, becoming like a fourth little branch of the government.
1: Well, yeah, Uh, the Occupy movement because of the Internet just exploded. And something like that, activist movements in the past, were never able to coalesce around an idea as quickly and as rapidly as the Occupy movement did last year. And so it's that ability of the Internet to actually start forming that separate political process. And uh, what would you say to someone who's thinking like, oh, you know, Democratic Party, the political process hasn't done anything except just spew partisan rhetoric for the last decade or so. Why should I even participate in covering something like a Democratic National Convention?
8: Big things, you know, why not? If if you're going to sit at home and be apathetic about it, are you going to be changing anything at all? So I think there's a good way this is a good outlet for somebody to come in and be involved in the system you can shoot video and you know we're empowering people once they shoot video make a clip we can put it on TV so it's going to be broadcast throughout um, the county and all the surrounding counties so some you know the president could turn on his TV and watch something you you know the blogger made about an issue and and, you know what's the effect on that of senators and congressmen having the accessibility to see your content as well as having being a big force that maybe tries to drive the discussion outside the circus of what's happening in the convention center into the real issues that are happening outside and focusing you know, the nation's attention on that.
4: There's this big discussion right now about removing corporate influence from government and there's corporate influence in media by the simple fact that you, well, you need money to get content out in front of people's you know, and that is less true more and more each day. So just the simple act of democratizing access to information and the ability to share information is removing for-profit interests from civic engagement.
1: If I'm hearing this and I'm saying, I really want to be engaged in the Democratic National Convention, I really want to be involved in what happens in terms of federal government policy, and this is a way by producing audio content around this, around an issue that I'm passionately engaged about, what could I do to actually be involved with, with the people at the DNC?
13: You could visit our webpage and, and register with us, which is theppl.us we're also on twitter and facebook but what we're really focused on is facilitating that feeling of empowerment so that people regardless of if they participate with us we want to make sure that they know that if they are going to participate and they want to come there's a place for them and that that single bit of action from the individual even the the practice of asking a question in a question and answer forum the people who are being asked these questions, they're also hearing uh, in a little more direct way the context of the question. And so I think when we've empowered this kind of voice, it's going to draw people here.
0: Uh, something also to think about, Justin, is we talked to, with Lorette Lynn about the education system and how the education system is something that we are all been a part of growing up, and that breaking away from the education system, in Lorette's opinion, is something that's very important. Now, you and I are both being a part. Of the educational system and having gone through how many like 18 plus years of schooling you're still in schools you're still part of that whole system do you think Lorette's views are validated and that the current education model really has a long way to go to be useful once again
1: I think that the challenge with higher education is that it's throwing people into so much debt and it's giving them skills for an industrial economy that doesn't exist anymore, and it's just on its last legs. During one of the breaks, I played a clip from our upcoming interview with uh, University of Victoria Professor Michael McGonigal, and he's seeing a lot of students who are coming and saying, you know, I really just want to farm. I really just want to be able to work the land and manage agriculture. That's really exciting. There's so much structure available in governments and universities that can be put to good use as long as we're willing to help direct them towards the right kind of things. There's so many completely wasteful things that they're geared towards and have so much momentum in the directions that they're headed, but there's still some useful things that we can do. And we get into a little bit of that when we speak with Michael McGonigal on one of our upcoming episodes. But like what Joel Bakken was saying is that these old ideas seem to avoid any challenges, such as like Nazi regimes and Eastern European regimes, and we talked about this a little bit with Lorette, but people don't really seem to think to challenge them, and neoliberal economic viewpoints have reached that point where no one really thought of any reason to challenge them unless you were on the oppressed side of it. In the developed world, we were always on the upper hand of it. We were always being able to export our exploitation to places like Peru and Bangladesh and all of these countries all around the world. And so we were able to outsource and push all of the negative externalities so far away that we didn't have to see them. But now, all of that negative stuff is starting to creep back in, and we're starting to see it in countries like Spain and france and the united states and canada as well
0: and what i think is really fascinating is people graduating right now who have no jobs and they're going back to school for law degrees or for higher education degrees and they're getting out of those degrees with like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in debt and then they can't find jobs and they're just struggling because they have all this education and all this massive amounts of debt and they just don't know what to do because they can't find work. And these jobs that a couple decades ago would have guaranteed you a high paying salary and a high paying wage that you can pay back all these debts are no longer existing. So that brings into question, why even go to higher education universities and places of learning when you're just going to get out and not be able to get a job with the degree that you have? It's making these universities kind of rethink their whole models. One model I find very promising is the Khan Institute method, which is flipping education on its head. They're putting the lectures out there for people to view and they're bringing the actual work into the classroom. You learn all the stuff out of the classroom and you bring the actual work into the classroom so that you're doing the homework in class. That brings a whole new set of dynamics to education because that's saying that education should be free for everyone and that the actual expertise and the refining of the work is going to be happening in a a classroom, which is very different than the model is now.
1: Yeah. And on one of the recent episodes on the C-Realm, I talked about how left the US and moved to Canada, largely in part of the higher education system, is much more affordable here. That by no means means that it's significantly better. It's much more affordable, yes but there's still a lot of the same challenges of the neoliberal model of education that are being pushed out in British Columbia in Canada you know you're seeing tons and tons of student riots in Montreal right now because the same problem that's going on in European countries are starting to hit the United States and Canada and the governments are going to respond in the exact same ways and so it's not like if you're in the United States and you're saying oh I still want to go to an institution of higher education I'll leave the country, that's not always going to be the approach that works the best. However, I do find that the ability to get out of the country that you're living in and go and study somewhere else has many other benefits far beyond what you're actually learning in your higher education institution, and in a lot of ways, the themes that come out of the extra environmentalist are just because of the experiences that you and I have had in being able to study in in other countries. And so that's really valuable. Hopefully in these models like the Khan Academy, where there's going to be people from all around the world who are learning using these online tools. And hopefully podcasts like the extra environmentalist can be a part of that, we can start sharing all these experiences that we're having all around the world and start actually utilizing the power of the internet as opposed to just catering to corporate brands.
0: Undoubtedly, Justin. And that's a great transition into another point that I wanted to make is that the Extra Environmentalist is going on its first road trip. That's right, folks. Extra Environmentalist will be in Montreal from the 12th of May to the 19th of May covering the Degrowth Conference, which is going on there. We're not only going to be bringing you audio at this conference, but we're going to be bringing you video and audio and blog posts. So, Be on the lookout for us there. If you're in the Montreal area and you want to come hang out with the extra environmentalists, let us know. Send us a tweet. Send us an email and we will get up with you.
1: This is a big leap for the extra environmentalists because we're not just going to be doing audio. As Seth just mentioned, we're going to be doing video. And that's because there's a lot of really important economic thinkers who are going to be at this conference. And we've tried a few things on our live stream page in the past. But what our live stream page will allow us to do is we're going to be able to throw up sessions of this conference and video, hopefully video from this conference as it happens. And so you'll be able to tune in on those dates. We'll be posting a link on our Twitter and our Facebook so you can tune in to our live stream page. But also we're going to be putting together a lot of really good high quality video that we've edited afterwards. And so you'll be able to tune into that as we finish it up. But while we're there in Montreal, you can definitely let us know how you're feeling about the lectures as they're happening and the interviews as they're happening. And we're going to be putting out dispatches a few times during that week to kind of recap everything that's been happening there.
0: And that's right, Justin. And and if you're interested in finding out more about the Extra Environmentalist, you can always check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check out our Twitter feed at XEnvironmental, which is really taking off. We've gotten a lot of followers recently. You can find us on Facebook. Just type in Extra Environmentalist. You can find us on the Stitcher radio app, so you don't even need to download our shows, but you can listen right on there. You can contact the Extra Environmentalist through our email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. You can find our SoundCloud listed on our website as well. And you can always leave us a voicemail on our voicemail, which is 919-701-XTRA.
1: 919-701-XTRA. And give us a call. And you know what? If you want to say this is, you know, whatever your name, you're listening to the Extra Environmentalist, we will throw you into the episode when we have our little takeaways where we say that.
0: If you have a really exotic accent,
1: we would love to hear you even more. Thanks to Angie from Woodend for her donation and for her... Awesome email just saying how much she's been enjoying the show recently. We're going to take that money and put that towards our stay in Montreal along with any of the other donations that we get between now and the end of May to be able to put that content out. So that's really awesome that we're going to be able to crowdfund this video production that we're doing in Montreal through all the donations we've been getting through the show recently. So all of you are making that happen. And if you want to chip in to getting that video content out there of all of these different economic alternatives that are going to be discussed at the Degrowth Conference, and you want to shoot us a donation specifically for the coverage at the Degrowth Conference, put that into the line. If you send a donation in, and we will be sure to throw either your name in the credits or give you a mention in some of the videos that we put out there.
0: And Justin, how can people actually donate? What's the actual link where do they do?
1: Well, you go to www.extraenvironmentalist.com, and on the right-hand side, there is a donate button. So many of you have been really kind to throw us your heart or money, and we really, really appreciate it. It's absolutely incredible. We've also been getting a lot of great emails. We heard from John, who suggested that we go with a different approach to talking about The Invisible Hand, which which actually inspired me to remember one of the jokes that we told at that Jackson
0: Hole conference. It brought yeah. me back too. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was a pretty special time, that Jackson Hole conference. What does a Secret Service agent have to pay for
1: that an economist gets for free? An invisible hand job.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Actually the more you think about it, the less sense it makes, so just don't think about it. Yeah, it's better not to think, usually. <laughs> That's that's what I have found is thinking usually makes jokes less funny.
1: And also thanks to everyone else who shot in emails, including from Miles, who said that he's been listening from one of the largest power plants inside of the United States. So that's cool to know that inside the halls of institutional power and electric power, there are people listening and enjoying the show. So thanks
0: for that, Miles. So if you want to hear more of Justin and Seth's opinions on what these topics mean to us and how we think about the world, you can check out Lorette Lynn's podcast, the Unplugged Mom podcast, which our episode will be premiering April 30th this Monday. And you can check us out and hear what we have to say. Justin, what's the website for her?
1: Her website is www.unpluggedmom.com. And definitely check it out. She's got a lot of great shows. The month of May is going to be a huge month in terms of where we're headed economically and where we're headed as a society because there's so many actions that are being planned by the Occupy movement around the world and so many big events that are coming this month. So it's going to be really exciting to see how this all
0: turns out. So this brings us to the end of episode number 40 of The Extra Environmentalist, which I really think is a landmark. This has been a huge project that's just taken us so far. Got to meet so many people from all around the world, and it just keeps growing and growing. So from The Extra Environmentalist, thank you so much for all your time and your effort in listening to us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to what we're putting out here on The Extra Environmentalist, and we are so fortunate to be able to collaborate with all of our amazing listeners on working on these most important topics that we're facing as a society today.
0: And to all of our friends out there who are keeping it real and fighting the fight, get ready to get your tomatoes in because the weather is heating up and we're about to get some summer vegetables. That's right.
14: hesitate? Why do we not take the plunge? Why is this always coming to the brink and withdrawing, running away? Why don't we see the thing as is and act? Is it a part of our education that has cultivated function Enormous function. We give tremendous importance to function as an engineer, as a professor, as a med- doctor, and so on so on, functioning in a particular technique. And we have never cultivated or encouraged or inquired into what is intelligence. Where there is intelligence, there won't be this hesitation. There is action. When one is very sensitive, you act. That sensitivity is intelligence. Now, in education, as, as I have observed it both here and in India and other parts of the world, education is merely the tra- training the mind to function to the dictates of society. So many engineers are wanted. <laughs> so many doctors are wanted. If you get into a profession where a few you might make more money. So we are encouraged and trained to function. in in the field of activity as functions, careers. Now, we hesitate to enter or plunge into something that demands all your attention, not fragmentary, all your attention, because we don't know what to measure. We know how to measure function. Here we have no measure. Therefore I depend. Therefore I won't reason here, because I don't know how to reason. I don't say to a man who says, I know, or, I say, what do you know? Don't you only know something that's gone, finished, dead. You can't say, I know something that's living. And so, gradually, as I see it, the mind becomes dull, restless. Its curiosity is only in the direction of functioning. It has no capacity to inquire. To inquire, you must have freedom first. I can't inquire otherwise. If I come to inquire to something which I have to inquire about, if I have prejudices, I can't inquire. If I have conclusions about that, I can't inquire. Therefore, there must be freedom to inquire. And that is denied. Society and culture laid tremendous importance on function. And function has its own status. So status matters much more than function. And so I live in that field, in that structure, and I, I depend on an authority. I have no basis for reasoning. So, it is partly the fault of our education, partly our incapacity to look at anything objectively. Our incapacity to look at a tree without all the rigmarole, knowledge, screen blocks that prevents me from looking at the tree. I never look at my wife, if I have a wife, or a girl, whatever. I never look. I look at her or him through the image I have about him or her. So the image is the dead, dead thing. So I never look at a living thing. I never look at nature with all the marvel of it, the beauty of it, the, shape, the loveliness of it, but I'm always translating it, trying to paint it, write about it, or enjoy it. Or, you follow? From that arises the question: Why do I? Why do human beings accept authority, obey? Is it because they have been trained in the field of? function mm-hmm. where you must obey to learn.
5: Don't tell me our youth is running out. It's only just begun. Don't tell me our youth is running out. It's only just begun. Don't tell me our youth is running out. It's only just begun. Big gun, big gun, big On
1: the next Extra Environmentalist, the film Surviving Progress.
5: Don't bring me back.
12: In defining progress, I think it's very important to make a distinction between good progress and bad progress. I mean, things progress in the sense that they change both in nature and in human society, there appears to be a clear trend towards increasing complexity as change proceeds. We tend to delude ourselves that these changes always result in improvements from the human point of view. Reaching a point at which technological progress and the increase in our economies and our numbers threaten the very existence of humanity.
8: We can't. I think it's just the way you're ideologically programmed. People like Greenspan and, you know, I think they're not stupid people. They're just, they were programmed ideologically to believe in constant growth and think that it's impossible that ecologically that growth is not backed up. And that's the interesting point in the film in that these kind of ideological pathologies, are very similar to like religious delusions. So I think it's, it's more connected to how you're programmed than if you're not aware of things because of course they're aware they just the way they process the idea is, is kind of painted so it's not a matter of being aware It's how you look at it in some cases the ideological brainwash is pretty deep.
2: To Bieber, starring Sean Connery, Kim Kardashian, and Justin Bieber as The Bieber. Honey, I had a long day at the unemployment office. My employers sued me to make sure that I don't receive my unemployment benefits.
12: That sounds really hard for you, honey. I made you your favorite lima beans and tuna fish salad.
2: Oh, well, thank you.
12: Honey, who's that smelly ho- homeless looking man sitting next to you?
2: Well, honey... Now that we can no longer afford a wireless internet bill, I had to go and find this wireless hotspot homeless man. He's going to serve as our internet from now on. His name's Sean, and I gave him two dollars to come home with us tonight. He's going to be our internet.
12: Two dollars? That's our whole food budget for the week. (laughs) Hi, Dad! Hi, Mom! Who's that guy with you?
2: Beba! You made it in from school today?
12: Yeah, I only got beat up by three bullies. One kid brought a gun to school, but they took it away from him at the metal detectors. And only three cars got broken into on the way home. It was a great day. What
2: about Jimmy? Did he bring that grenade to protect you?
12: Yeah, Jimmy's been bringing the grenade, but he pulled the pin the other day and it hasn't worked since.
5: I'll
2: miss that kid.
12: Dad, does that Wi-Fi hotspot talk or is he just... Is he silent?
2: I paid him to provide wireless internet service, not to carry on a conversation. That's the deal.
12: Looks like he's eating all of our food, Dad.
2: Hey, hey, stop eating that. So, honey, what'd you get up to today?
12: Well, today I went to the market and I bought 10 boxes of shotgun ammo and I bought you a new Uzi. Do you like it?
2: Oh, thank you, June. That's that's
12: amazing. Maybe after dinner, we can go out outside and shoot some pigeons for tomorrow's lunch.
2: I'd love to be able to take my lunch to the unemployment office tomorrow.
12: Yay, we're going pigeon hunting! <laughs>
2: all right now, Beba, You need to go upstairs and study all the different types of guns that you'll need to defend this property from the neighbors.
12: Aw, oh, Dad, do I have to? <laughs>
2: Absolutely. And make sure you stay up even after the lights go out because of the blackout. Use these candles that we made out of fat and rendered.
12: Better use those things very wisely. Thanks, Dad.
2: (laughs) All right, honey. After dinner with all those lima beans we have, I'm going to go use our homeless Wi-Fi hotspot to go look for work all evening.
12: Make sure to save all that lima bean gas so we can power the generator tomorrow morning. Thanks for the reminder,
2: June. I always seem to get caught up with my own hot air sometimes. Let's go, hotspot. I've got some job searching to do.
5: <laughs>